Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Mulburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. Guess who is back, y'all? Ladies and gentlemen, it's TK Coleman. Yeah! <laughs> I love the sound effects. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Are those customized for me, like ringtones? Yes, yeah, yeah. Just for you, darling. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that disembodied voice you hear is Malabama, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, everybody. We've got the rest of our team here in the studio as well. Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, a.k.a. Danny Uncontained. Oh, yes. <laughs> Danny Understands. <laughs> And we have a studio audience of two. The millennial minimalists are here, Kelly and Lauren. Give them a round of applause as well. We're the only show that applauds for their audience. That's right. Now, we have to talk about something serious. Patrons, I wasn't completely forthright with you last week. We know TK was gone. And I told you he was in the hospital, but I didn't really tell you what for. He... He flew to Turkey to get a hair transplant. <laughs> <laughs> and it just didn't take. It didn't take. <laughs> but while he was there, he got the Brazilian butt lift, and you should see the backside on TK right now. Unbelievable. Dude, his OnlyFans is popping right now. <laughs> well, you know, I, I tried these uh, these like attachable dreads. And I had to go all the way out to Turkey for that. They just tried to like stick little dreadlocks all you over. Did Jimmy Butler? He did that in the off season, right? <laughs> oh my god! Did you see that picture of him? I don't think it was I saw wild. that. It anyway, wasn't real. It wasn't real. No, I mean no. It was just it was extensions. <laughs> That's great. Let's let's talk about what really happened, though. I don't know how much you want to divulge, but you um, went through several days of pure hell. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so uh, no secret or anything like that, but. Uh, so basically, <laughs> my wife and I were getting ready to celebrate our anniversary and uh, took a day off work, uh, took Friday off, took uh, the following mo- uh, Monday off. And um, anyway, we uh, we went and had a, a good spa day on Saturday, had a nice dinner. And then after coming home later on that night, I just kind of started to feel a little bit funny. Mm. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you just think, you know, you can sleep it off or whatever. And then I just couldn't sleep throughout the night. And um Eventually, my ability to hold anything down, a glass of water, anything just like disappeared. And I'm just like, anything I put in, it's 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 wow. only coming out the way I put it in. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm starting to feel just a ton of pain in my stomach. And I'm thinking, I must have caught a bug somewhere. I, I was in a hot tub. Maybe I like caught a, a virus something. Mm. Uh, maybe it was the food I ate. I had food poisoning or something. So I'm still thinking it's probably not just, it's not that dramatic, just hurts a lot. And so um, I ended up scheduling a, a virtual appointment with the doctor just to kind of keep things on the safe side. And she told me, uh, I will go to urgent care because the symptoms you're describing sounds like an abdominal obstruction. Mm. And um, I got a CAT scan. Turns out that um, a complication from a prior surgery in 2012 did result in uh, my small intestines kind of like getting twisted. Oh, wow. So you had a hernia in 2012. Yeah. And when, 
I don't know if they're still doing this. I know they're moving or they tend to be moving away from it, but when someone has a hernia, I had one at one point and mm-hmm. it, it resolved on its own. It wasn't a really bad one, but they, the surgery they do is they put a mesh in there. And what happens oh. is thousands of people get bowel obstructions because of the, of mesh. the, the, mesh. the mesh. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So when you've got, when you've got it, you know, tied up like that, nothing's passing through. Oh. And was, so was it the mesh? Is that well? It, it was related to that. Okay. All yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. But but it was it was the intestines getting because yeah. like there are a few different ways that complications can happen and and mm-hmm. I didn't know about this at all. But apparently it's a really common thing. So common. And and it's it's kind of random as as to when it can happen. For some people, it can be a couple of weeks after surgery. For some mm-hmm. people, a few months. Um. Mine was back in 2012, and I never had anything like that happen. Five just just to clarify, merged. everyone I know who has the mesh has had some sort of complication. Eleven around years it. later. Oh, dude. Crazy. Yeah, we saw a uh, um. I saw a documentary on the mesh and it, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I'm glad you're okay, man. Yeah, man. So, um, basically, you know, uh, they admitted me to the hospital. I I wasn't expecting at all. I was thinking, Oh, I'll just go there. I'll get a CAT scan. I'll be like, yeah, it's just this, this, you'll be all right. Go home. Mm -hmm. They're like, uh, yeah, you need to stay overnight. And they broke everything down to me. So they put me on, um, uh, on the IV, Mm -hmm. but then on the other side of this IV is basically like a, a reverse IV. They took this tube Stuck it up my nose, mm-hmm. brought it around, down my throat, into my stomach. Mm. And now, like, this is suctioning everything out. And so you see the opposite drip. Mm. Things are coming out. And the, the other drip, the IV, things are going in. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, man, the, pain. The, the moment they put that <clears throat> in me. Mm. I was like, I'm okay now. I, I feel better. Take this out and let me go home. <laughs> I'm healed. Oh, it's a miracle. <laughs> I was like, I swear I'm good. It's like when I used to fake sick to stay home from school. Right. And then when I wake up and try to watch TV, my mom be like, oh no, baby, you're sick. This is what you're doing with your time. Like, oh, uh, actually, I think I'm better. <laughs> That's how I felt, man. I mean, that was so uncomfortable. I truly felt like as soon as this thing comes out of me, I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to be okay no matter how much my stomach hurts. Mm. That's how bad that was. Like if I had to pick, like if, if God was like, all right, I'm going to give you a week where you pick your pain. I'd be like, G- give me that ab obstruction for a week. And that's wow. just like wow. crazy pain rather than putting that up. Like, because you, you can't really do any, a bunch of twists and turns. You're not right. really doing... Um, the, the pain is so strong, like you can't really think about anything. You're not going to want to read or or watch TV or look at your phone. No. Um, talking, it it hurts. Right. It's really uncomfortable. Swallowing hurts. You can't drink anything. You can't take anything in if it's not coming through IV. And so you just got to, you just basically got to sit there and hope that you get as sleepy as you can, as often as you can, so you can get some kind of break, you know? Mm. So anyway... I, I was in. A, I spent that week in a hospital, and so. Uh, but my anniversary did teach me about true love, because mm-hmm. my wife, she took care of me, man. Mm-hmm. She she was there the whole time, taking care of me, looking out for me, and um, I mean, wow. this was supposed to be a time for us to kind of get away and just you know spend a lot of quality time together. Oh, you got and, away uh, all right. Yeah. I got away all right. Yeah. We and, we talked yesterday on the phone briefly, and I thought yeah. this would be important for this because. We always talk about living in the moment or mm-hmm. being in the moment as this virtuous or positive or good thing, mm-hmm. but nothing really puts you in the moment like intense pain. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, because there's nothing to think about. Like I, I have never 
had my focus that singular before. Mm. I mean, e- even like not not just negative things, but like even like positive things like, oh, you know what? I should tell my mom what's going on or, or hey, like uh, um, I have to use the bathroom. I want something to drink. Like you literally have to do one thought at a time. So if I'm like getting out of bed and someone's asking me, do I need help? That was way too complicated for me. Mm. It's like, <clears throat> whatever you're asking me, wait until I can get my body position and then, you know, I, I can answer your question. Like right. doing two things at the same time, that that's real. Like I just had to focus on one thing at one time and it's just, there was really nothing to think about other than mm. just like being acutely aware of that pain. Mm. So anyway, mm. I mean, I, I don't want to just bore anybody with just re- rehashing the details of how tough it was, but it was pretty tough. But thankfully, I got the thing out of my nose mm. and out of my stomach and out of my throat. And uh, when they told me that I can, when they took that out, and, uh, oh, by the way, by the way, let, let me just describe this, the process of putting it in. So they come in with this, um, with this like a uh, big, like jug of water with a straw in there and it's three people. All right. And each, each of these people is kind of coaching me on a different thing I need to do. One person is like, is telling me they're going to put this up, up my nose. And when, when they do that, I've got to go up like this. Okay. The other person is going to be like feeding me the water. And like, I'm going to need to uh, be sipping on that water as they're pushing it down. The other person is coaching me on tucking because I need to make sure that my chin is touching my test and I'm tucking. So he's sticking this up my nose and the other person's like, drink, 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 tuck, tuck. (laughs) As this person's sticking it up and, and it really felt like, it really felt like what was happening was I was out on the street. And somebody was like, lift up your head so I can punch you in the face. And the other person was like... <laughs> it sounds like a David Blaine <laughs> really? experiment yeah. gone wrong. Yeah. My stars. Yeah. yeah, so I'm doing all this at the same time. And, and, and it's just like hurting so bad. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Oh. And my wife is in the corner just like not looking encouraging at oh. all. I'm like, is it that bad? Like, oh my gosh, it's oh. worse than it feels. <laughs> so anyway, man, I'm so glad to have that thing out of me. Um, I'm definitely going to have to make some changes though mm. in terms of, uh, you know, what I can mess around with on the food side in, mm-hmm. in order to, um, it, it's like, look, there, there are certain things I can, I can try, I can flirt with, but it's sort of like I'm rolling the dice every time I do that. Yeah. And, and wow. if I, and each time I roll the dice, I take the risk of generating a consequence that says, all right, now you can't even roll the, roll the dice. You mm. absolutely must avoid it in order to live. So I have to make some adjustments and changes like that. And so that's my gift from the universe mm. because uh, I did recently pray like, you know what? I need to make some changes and I really want to make them. And I've tried a few times and failed. Oof. Like, help me out, please. And uh, the universe is like, okay, I got your back, bro. Oh, man. Ask and you shall receive. I, yeah, they, yeah. You got to make those changes. So wow. did they like cut out a section and then put it back together? Like how did it all work? So we didn't do it surgically. That's okay. why we did this oh, wow. whole treatment. So okay. because the the logic was um, if you can resolve it or alleviate it without surgery, yeah. you you avoid the additional possible complications that come with surgery. Because every time... Exponential you, yeah. complications yeah. after Especially that. with yeah. the intestines. Like, yes. I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah. And so so what you're illustrating here, this is why I wanted to bring this long story into the podcast, is nothing, and I mean nothing, is com- <clears throat> as compelling as pain. Mm. Yeah. I know. If you... Feel enough pain, you will make any change in your life. Now, there are two ways to do that. You can be forced into it, mm-hmm. or you can also create the pain, the pain of not changing, yeah. understanding that not changing is going to leave me where I am. Mm. And I'm really 
I, we, we actually talked about this briefly. Ryan and I did on the podcast last week. I said, I'm looking forward to seeing the lessons that not just that TK learns, but that he implements into his life because of the pain of this whole process. Mm. I'm so yeah. grateful you're back, man. Yeah, man. It's good to be Likewise. back, yeah. So, yeah. What, like, what's the, uh, what's the diet that, like, they've got you? Like, in, if you were to eat a pristine diet, like, what would it consist of? Um, I, I won't give pristine, but I, but as a baseline, it has to be low fiber. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, pretty much a lot of the junk foods and stuff like that, that I enjoy. Most yeah. of those are just like, got to go. They're done. So yeah. it sounds like foods. he's a carnivore now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds, it's very paleo-esque, it right? Is, and yeah. so like no processed foods, nothing that's going to disrupt the gut. So yeah. any, there are certain vegetables that are high in fiber. They're going to really disrupt the gut. Um, it, it, too much fiber is what is going to cause pain for him mm. right now. And wow. so to avoid pain, you want things that have, have less fiber. Yeah. We're going to dive into some callers here in a second. But first, big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because say it with me, y'all. Advertisements suck. Yes, they do. Let's get into our callers. If you have a question or a comment for our show, please give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice recording to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Christy. Hi, my name is Christy from Opelika, and I can identify why I had salt in the past like an alcoholic. Salting is my drug. My deceased husband committed suicide December 26, 2013. He was abusive, and I couldn't even buy underwear when he was alive. I received life insurance, so I started shopping to forget. I went crazy buying stuff. My family also used me to get money. I would have done anything to hang on to my family, and they knew that. So with a little background now, daily, I'm having to deal with suppressed emotions that are extremely painful. Not shopping, I'm seeing the emptiness in my soul. I've lost family that only wants the next dollar for me. I've lost so much that matters to me, which is my family. I'm a believer in Christ, and I feel guilty for all the mistakes I've made with money. What does healing look like? How can I move on in a positive way? I have downsized, and I only own a home 960 square feet. I've sold, donated, and trashed 80% of my stuff, but emotionally I'm a mess. How do I heal? How can I maintain being a, a minimalist, a human sleeping out another human? Wow, Christy, I'm so sorry to hear what you're struggling through. I, I hear three main things that I want to talk to TK and Ryan about. The first one is the shopping addiction. Yeah, That's one side of it. The other side of it is the family that is using her. Of course, you always hear us say love people and use things because the opposite never works. But what she's actually experiencing is the opposite here. Yeah. And it's not working. In fact, it's draining her and it's harming her because she's asking about healing. And yeah. so the third thing I want to talk about is finding a renewed sense of minimalism or simplicity or simplifying, getting to that why. Why are you simplifying your life? Mm. Where do you want to start, gentlemen? Let me, let me just first give a, a quick word of encouragement to Christy and say, 
one, I'm sorry about everything you've been through that you described. And two, just like big kudos to you for everything that you've done. Uh, But with respect to that guilt you say you feel, you say, as a Christian, I feel guilty. And so Christian to Christian, I, I say back to you the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And I will toss them into the sea of forgetfulness. If God forgets your sins, your failures, and the mistakes from your past, why are you still holding on to them? It all begins with letting that go, letting go of the self-condemnation. Remorse is okay. Remorse is when we look back on our past and we say, I did something that doesn't reflect my values and my priorities. Mm. I'm going to learn from that and do something better. Your conscience is a tool to help you with that. But self-condemnation is when you say, because I have failed in the past, that failure is now who I am. Mm. Let go of the self-condemnation, learn from the remorse, and give yourself the permission to learn and to grow and get better. It's the first thing I want to say as the foundation. Um, so Can many I interrupt things, for just yeah. one second? Yeah, please. I, I love this because we all three have different religious, spiritual beliefs, yeah. right? But you can find profound wisdom in any ancient wisdom tradition, and including mm-hmm. Christianity. And I yeah. love that you're able to connect with with her in that way. Where, where do you want to take it from here? Yeah, uh, the, the, the loss of family, when you receive that insurance money, people start flooding into your life and, and, and basically being, being groupies in your life. I, and they, they played on what you knew was a weakness, which mm-hmm. is I, I, I need their validation. I long for their company and I can keep them around. And once you decided to stop playing that game, they left you and you describe that as a loss. And I just want to say, First, it's not a loss when the wrong people move out of your life. That's a gain Mm -hmm. because that is for your good. Secondly, you lost them long before you thought you had them. You lost them before they were coming into your life for the money. They were already gone because they were never with you for the right reasons. When people aren't with you for the right reasons, then they're not with you. It's just an illusion. And and, and they fall away at the first sign of, of difficulty or conflict. And so... I would say you are best positioned to create space for the right kind of people to begin flowing into your life now when you get rid of the people that are really just leeches. They're, they're just there to get something from you without giving anything back. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> I love what you're talking about with the condemnation. Another way to look at it is shame. So um, to help yeah. her kind of uh, uh, feel like she has the right to even kind of look externally I think that it's really important to take care of that condemnation first. So for me, like I know I've done a lot of things that made me feel guilty. I did a lot of things that made me feel guilty up until, um, you know, 29, 30 years old when we became the minimalists. And I remember when I started telling people about minimalism, they were kind of looking at me like, oh, okay. Okay, Mr. Minimalist. Like they saw how my lifestyle was. They saw like how I acted and who I was. Um, And it took years of me consistently... Um, behaving differently to uh, start to uh, to show a different side of me. And I'll tell you, it took years before I started to feel confident enough to like really um, feel like I was living a different life. So all that to say is Christy, in that beginning stage, when you are becoming someone different, it takes a long time before you really kind of shed that guilt. Um, but hey, the best way to stop feeling guilty 
is to stop doing things that make you feel guilty. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds like that's what she's doing. Yeah, and also stop accepting or needing the approval of people who make you feel guilty, who are actually trying to guilt trip you, right? Oh, yeah. Because that's here's a great the point. thing. You may not feel guilty on your own, but if someone keeps handing you their guilt, you should do this. You're supposed to do this for me. Mm. You're not a good friend, loved one, family member. You're not a good person unless you do these things for me. Mm. Man, that is a recipe for misery because as soon as you help this person, you've changed yourself to help them. Nothing wrong with helping other people, obviously, Mm -hmm. but not at the expense of your own well-being, your own sanity, your own ability to love. And I think that's the struggle that Christy's going through right now, TK, is she feels like, well, if I don't do what they want me to do, then it feels unloving. Mm. No, it's not unloving. In fact, The most loving thing that you can do right now, if someone is using you, explicitly using you, is love them from a distance. That's Mm. right. And people have a way of, of, of saying, so hypocritically, by the way, stop being selfish and do what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. Stop being selfish by living the life that you want to live and start living the life that I want to live because I'm not being selfish at all when I say that, yeah. right? But, you know, just because someone wants something from you doesn't mean that it's necessary, feasible, realistic, or healthy for you to be the one to give it to them. Mm-hmm. So people love to say things like, you know, I, I need more of this from you, Ryan. Mm-hmm. I need more of this from you, Josh. Okay, Uh, I mean, man, I I feel scared for anybody who uses those words with me because like if you really need something from me, you're in trouble. Right. Because that need doesn't translate into an obligation or an ability on my part. Mm -hmm. Right. But people say that all the time. But just because someone wants or needs something from you doesn't mean you're the best person to be the one to give it to them. And so you've got to let people take responsibility for themselves and make the choices that are healthy for you. And like Ryan said, the transitions are hell. Yeah. The transitions are difficult because you can't rely on those familiar patterns, those comfort, those comfort zones of the life that you once lived. And you got to reinvent yourself, reinvent your relationships. Like with our recent move, for instance, the social aspect is hell. When you go from like knowing who your neighbors are, always running into people that you know. You might love the life that you're going into, but you get tested every day with little questions like, am I sure I want to follow through on this? Am I sure I made the right decision? I never run into anybody that I know. I say hi to my neighbors. They looked out the way like I have zero friends out here. And it just takes time. That's not how the story ends. You can know that. But you just got to stick with it and give yourself time to grow into the person you're choosing to become. Yeah, I've, I've had uh, <clears throat> like family members and friends uh, ask me for money and I used to just give it out if I had it. And what I realized is I was kind of setting this precedence of like, hey, Ryan is the bank. If you need money, he'll help you out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had mm-hmm. to change the way I handled when people asked me that question. So um, I, I had it happen once where a family member was like, oh, here's what I need. And I'm like, okay, I'm not doing that for you. Like we, we've already had this conversation. Um, and they were like, well, you know, if I don't pay this fine, then I end up in jail. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm sorry to hear about that. Like, I, I don't want you to be in jail, but also me giving you money is just prolonging you helping yourself. And that's what you need your help more than anyone else. Mm. Yeah. And I'm happy to help you in any other way. Um, but the, the, the financial piece of it, um, that's, that's out of the question. And um, yeah, I absolutely followed through with that and talked to that family member, showed them love, gave them support. Um, They're doing much better today. 
and, and I'm not taking credit for that, but uh, I am saying that when you have a family member who is trying to guilt trip you into giving you something that you really don't have or that isn't going to really help them in the long run, you have every right to look at that family member and say, I'm sorry, but like, that's not how I'm going to help you. And if they get upset, oh, you, because that family member was like, but putting it on me, mm-hmm. you could really change my life. You could do this. You could do that. And I'm like, no, like it is you're, you being upset. I'm sorry you're upset, but this is, this is on you. This is not on me. I mean, you can put it on me all you want, but yeah. until you take responsibility, it's going to be hard for you to, to live a, a little bit of a, of a different life. So mm. I'm just giving her permission here to tell her family no, but to also still be there um, for her family in, in any way, in any way that she can. Yeah. This is not how I'm going to love you right now. This mm-hmm. is not the best way for me to show my love is to hand you money. Just like I can't drag you kicking and screaming to success. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what your family member was asking you, right? Can you please drag me to the place in which I'm flawless? Well, yeah. no, because you're just going to drift right back to where you were if I do all the work for you. Yeah. Christy, I'd love Mm. to send you three things, actually, because you first talked about the shopping addiction, and that is simultaneously the easiest and most difficult part of this question. I want to help you set up some boundaries. We have a free minimalist rule book, 16 Rules for Living with Less. You can download it for free right now at theminimalists.com right there on our resources page, a bunch of other free resources in there some rules in there, like the wait for it rule. If something costs more than $30, wait 30 hours. What is that doing? It's adding some friction into your life. So you're Mm -hmm. staving off the impulse of these new purchases. That addiction, which is present, will still be there. But if you don't act on it over time, it becomes less powerful. You could append that to when family members ask for money. If they ask you for more than $30, (laughs) wait at least 30 hours. (laughs) And then tell them no. Right. And then tell them no. Real quick, uh, my wife and I were watching uh, John Christ. Is that how you say his name? Comedy special last night? I don't know. And anyway, he said uh, his nephew and his niece were like sitting at a table and the nephew did something to make the niece mad. And he says, I'm sorry, please don't tell mom. And she says, I'll forgive you for $5. And uh, I feel like when you give people money in order to keep them from being mad at you, that's exactly what you're doing. You're playing a game like that. People are basically Mm -hmm. saying, hey, I'll like you for $100. I won't be mad at you for a $50 loan or whatever it may be. And if you play that game, you can never get out of that game. It just makes it hard to escape it later. Yeah. Two other things I have for you, Christy. Love People Use Things, our book. Obviously, we've been talking about that during this episode. What's happening right now is you are being used by people. And that can also turn you into someone who uses other people. If you see it demonstrated enough by other people, what happens? You start to take on those behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so our book, Love People Use Things, if you enjoy the podcast, I think you'll enjoy the audiobook version. Ryan and I recorded that audiobook together. And then finally, some great news. We're going to expand on this later during the Right Here, Right Now segment, I'm going to encourage you to go back and watch our first documentary. It's called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things, and it just came out on YouTube yesterday. It's getting its third life after its theatrical release, its Netflix release. 80 million people saw it on Netflix, and now it is finally available on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Minimalist, or you can find it over at minimalism.com as well. Our next question is from Lane. Hi, my name is Lane, and I'm calling from Los Angeles. 
I heard you mention on your consumerism show that one of you had stayed in an Airbnb while you were visiting Seattle. I found that interesting because on one hand, I think it's cool that average people are able to make a little money, uh, extra money renting out their spaces. But on the other hand, services like Airbnb are destroying neighborhoods in cities such as San Francisco and make it impossible for residents to find affordable housing as well as affecting community, communities in a negative fashion. For example, how would you feel if you had bought or rented a home in a community that you carefully vetted only to find out that you now have, you know, very few actual neighbors around you. Instead, you have a revolving door of strangers that are staying there. Um, the same goes for their sharing economy services that appeal to, you know, millennials such as Uber and Lyft that are acting outside of the rules, regulations, and safety codes that everyone else in those industries have to follow. Um, I have a friend actually that says it's not really so much a sharing economy as a share cropping economy. For example, Uber is building their business on the backs of their drivers who aren't considered employees and get no benefits or protections and will eventually become obsolete as Uber is investing a ton of dough in self-driving cars. Um, obviously, part of reducing consumerism is a desire to be more ethical in your shopping or habits. So how do you square up the lack of ethics in these businesses with your desire to say have, you know, a cool place to stay when you're traveling or a ride that you can hire at the touch of an app? Lane sounds really bothered by some mm -hmm. things. And TK, I have a whole rant that I want to go on here <laughs> about being bothered because I see myself <laughs> yeah. in her. In fact, I, Me too. I dated someone like Lane who was bothered by almost everything mm. and it brought it out in me because I am bothered by almost everything. I, yeah. I have OCD. And so I think by nature, I'm sort of bothered. Mm -hmm. But you can talk, can you talk about some of these services that may, might be bothering her, TK? Yeah. You know, I think Scott Barry Kaufman, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, um, had a, had a really great, uh, tweet storm uh, a few days ago where he talked about the need for more yes and in politics. He says, most discussions now are so oversimplified that it's either you believe mm -hmm. problems are systemic or you believe individual agency exists. Mm -hmm. And there is no having both. So if you ever say there are some things that are within your locus of control that you ought to focus on, you are an enemy of the belief that some problems are structural in nature. And if you affirm that some problems are structural in nature, you're an enemy of the belief that we are ever personally responsible for anything in our lives. And it's actually a little bit of both. It is the nature of problems that every problem has a systemic dimension mm. and a personal dimension. No exceptions to this. If there's a problem, there are elements way beyond our control, lots of moving parts that are contributing to the emergence and experience of that problem. And there are also some things we can do to have agency over how we react and respond. And so the thing we have to ask ourselves whenever we're observing all of these sort of systemic problems that are annoying us is, okay, what's going to be your personal relationship to what you do about the systemic things? Because that's what it comes down to. Yeah. How are you personally going to fight fight that, educate yourself about that, empower others to do things about it? Mm -hmm. And each person has to answer that question for themselves. The second part, however, which does not require a denial of the first part, is how can I make sure that my preoccupation with these systemic things doesn't become paralyzing when it comes down to the everyday choices I've got to make for me and my family. Mm. Because we've got to get up and live our lives 
even though there will be people out there exploiting others, taking advantage of others every single day. And if I have to wait until someone comes along and solves all the systemic things and eliminates all the exploitation before I can do productive and constructive things, I'm going to be in trouble. And all the people who depend on me are going to be in trouble as well. And so I, I don't say ignore these issues. Um, I don't say pretend like they don't exist. I don't say deny them. But I do say don't let them prevent you from making the healthy choices you need to make to move on with your life. Because a part of what we have to do in life is learn how to play the game in spite of the fact that there are other participants in the game Mm -hmm. who are definitely breaking the rules that we ourselves are committed to not breaking. And that's a tough, challenging thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's putting it on yourself as much as you can. Like that's, I mean, that's what I do with like homelessness, for example, in Los Angeles drives Mm -hmm. me crazy. Like it's sad. So many freaking homeless people. So it's like a piece of me wants to, um, you know, uh, participate in out, uh, in recreational outrage on Twitter and talk about how, you know, whatever, uh, or, you know, our mayor isn't doing anything and it's these, all of these people's fault. Right. Exactly. Right. And unfortunately I used, I used to do that. And that recreational outrage, it almost feels like you're doing something because you feel like you're supporting something, Mm -hmm. but you're really not. I, I, I really wasn't doing anything with the recreational outrage. But let me tell you what I what I do. Could, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Could you argue that maybe you were doing less than nothing? I, I, I could probably find an argument for that. Absolutely. So here's what I do. I will, um, when I'm out and about and a homeless person asks me for something, which happens every day in LA, um, there are times where I am compelled to be like, oh, like this person legit needs something to like make their day a little better. And I will I go out of my way to do what I can. Um, this... There's a dude standing outside one of the um, uh, gas stations and I could just see like need some help. And I'm like, all right, what do you need, man? I like pulled out a $5 bill. He's like, I don't even want money. He's like, I just want food, man. I'm like, okay, cool. I was like, I will go in and get you some food. So I like went in and bought him, I don't know, some really bad junk food that TK can't eat anymore. (laughs) It wasn't TK asking me for the food. (laughs) But like I went out of my way to like, just here's the one thing I can do. That is much uh, that that is much more than um, going onto Twitter and being like uh, pointing the finger and saying all of you should feel bad for the way this is, and then me just like doing this and getting off of Twitter and be like, well, I did my part today. Yeah, I think you bring up a really <laughs> great point that you can do something even if it doesn't fix the problem in totality permanently. Yes, it, and I think that's what we're looking for is like unless the thing that I do contributes to fixing the problem in a permanent nature, I have an abiding cure for it, then I will just throw my hands up and do nothing. Dude, we make it binary way too way too often. It doesn't have yeah. to be one or the other. I mean, Lane's question is kind of like, either you're for or you're against it, and here's why I'm against it. Um, so wh- what do you think? Are you for or against it? And it's like, I'm neither for nor against it as much as like it is a, um, it's a business that exists. And a lot of people, um, they can't get to work without Uber. Um, I mean, there's, they can't have a job without Uber. Like I know people who, who use that to, I mean, I know she was kind of talking about the employees and how they're ripped off. I know a lot of people who um, drive for Uber and like, it's kind of their saving grace when it comes to making that supplemental income that they need to make to uh, pay, especially again in, in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. But here's the thing too. Cognitive dissonance is, we all have it. We all have it. Uh, if you use a computer, you are, uh, technically supporting, uh, child slave labor. 
Um, that's how the computers get made. So, you know, if you look at anything deep enough, um, you're going to find a reason to stand up against it. Mm-hmm. So again, this is just me uh, just giving another reason as to why it's not about like, you know, um, uh, whatever, lambasting these companies. It is figuring out what I, Ryan Nicodemus, could do on a daily basis to maybe um, help combat that or add some kind of value to the people who are getting value taken away from them. And I, I want to just take that a little bit further. The one thing that I can do is I can be less bothered. Mm. Lane yeah. compelled me to write something yesterday as I was listening to this question. You know, I sit down and I write every day and I wrote something that I think most people won't understand. I just called it bothered. If you look for reasons to be bothered, you'll find them, guaranteed. Look, I get it. You're angry, you're bitter, you're bothered by something that happened, by something that someone did or said. If you look for reasons to be bothered, you will find them. But the same is true with gratitude. If you look for reasons to be grateful, you'll find those too. The difference is bitterness holds you back. Gratitude allows you to let go so you can move forward. In fact, who told you that the things that bother you are bothersome? Are you supposed to be bothered by those things? Maybe. Maybe not. Yes, what happened was unfair. What's happening right now is unfair. Life is unfair. Who told you it's supposed to be fair? Okay. So maybe you've been wronged. Maybe you've been victimized. How long are you going to cling to your victimhood? Playing the victim brings anybody a temporary feeling of self-righteous certainty. But the same self-righteousness is the same thing that will keep you mired in a pool of discontent. To be clear, this is not some rant about why you should be more optimistic. I am not a blind optimist. Because forcing yourself to be positive, forcing yourself to be positive doesn't work. But seeing the positive in any less than ideal situation, even amid a sea of terrible injustice, takes less effort than clinging to the perceived negatives. Just ask Viktor Frankl. Just ask Viktor Frankl. If he could do it from a concentration camp, so can you. Or you can create your own concentration camp, one that is built with the disempowering stories you cling to. This is one of the many reasons I love my wife. She's no Pollyanna. She doesn't pretend that everything is perfect. She accepts things as they are, but she doesn't look for excuses to be bothered. Consequently, she's probably the happiest person I know. And she's a role model for letting go of negativity that doesn't serve anyone. So how long are you going to cling to being bothered? Because the longer you cling, the farther you're going to get dragged. Yeah. Mm. Energy flows where attention goes and you get to decide where you're putting your attention. Yeah. yeah. And this isn't a dissertation toward Lane. I, what no. I'm saying is, Lane, I see myself in you. So yeah. when I'm asking you these questions, I'm really asking my weakest self these questions because I have that tendency to be bothered. 
And so when I ask you about how long are you going to cling to being bothered, that is a question I have to ask myself all the time. Yeah. I often refer back to some of the Stoics. Shout out to the to Ryan Holiday and the, the Daily Stoic. But um, I brought some quotes here. Marcus Aurelius says, don't be overheard complaining even to yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and isn't that what happens? We had Dr. John Deloney on the podcast a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and he told that story of like anytime he's complaining, even to himself, where he's creating these narratives in his head, his wife will just hear him yell, nope, nope. And I've started incorporating <laughs> that even into my own life. As soon as a disempowering story, I can't believe she did this. I can't believe he did that. I can't mm-hmm. believe they did that. Nope. <laughs> and it shut that whole conversation down wow. right away, that wow. internal conversation. Here's another one from Marcus Aurelius. You always own the option of not having an opinion. You always own the option of having no opinion. Mm-hmm. There is never any need to be worked up or troubled uh, or to trouble your soul about things you can't control. These things are not asking to be judged by, by you. Mm. Leave them alone. Mm. So you always have the option, the power of having no opinion about a thing. We're in a culture now, especially with social media, where we are required to have an opinion about something oh and God. everything. I must stand on this side of the issue or this side of the issue, right? It's... Uh, well, like there's only two sides too. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's the problem. Yeah. And when I walk down the aisle in the middle, everyone wants to throw things at me from both sides. How can you, you must be left wing or right wing, or you must be this or that, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, no, I don't pick a side. Naval Ravikant talks about how if you, if your beliefs perfectly conform to any ideology or political party, that means you're not a clear thinker. You're not thinking for yourself. Mm. If you can take all of your beliefs and then just hand them to a political party, what happened is actually they handed you your beliefs. Mm. All of your beliefs are mimetic beliefs. I have two more quotes for you. This one is really short. It's from Epictetus. It's not things that upset us, but our judgment about things Mm. that upsets us. I thought you was quoting a rapper for a minute, Epictetus. I'm like, who's Epictetus? <laughs> <laughs> That's good, yeah. Well, I do have a quote here from the Stoic philosopher, Beyonce. <laughs> she said, don't talk about it, be about it. Yes. <laughs> and that's really what Ryan was talking about earlier. Or Epictetus may have put it a bit more poetically when he said, don't put on airs about your self-improvement. <laughs> yeah. Don't talk about it be about it doesn't mean that we can't say something, we can't speak up, but merely speaking up and not taking any sort of action, it's just words in the wind. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, one thing I will say is that I don't always hold other people to the standards that I hold myself to because we all come at things from different backgrounds, different vantage points and different priorities. And so when it comes to people who complain to me, part of my MO is I allow everyone the grace to tell whatever narrative they tell about their life Mm. without contesting them on that narrative. Mm. So if a friend comes to me and their narrative is the universe is totally unfair to me, I have it harder than everybody else. 
I allow them the grace of saying, that's that's your narrative. I'm not here to play devil's advocate with that narrative. I'm not here to argue you into how much better your life actually is or dismiss your problem as not being a big deal at all. It's That's your narrative. I'm here to hear you out with empathy. However, what I will try to do if I consider myself a friend is to ask you, where do you want to go with that from here? Mm. Is your goal to get me to also tell the same narrative about my life? Is mm. that is that what the end game is? Is that why we're having the conversation? Yeah, you tell yes. me what you need. Is the goal to help you figure out how to contend with or fight against whatever it is you condemn? Or is, is the goal to help you figure out how to cultivate whatever it is you love? You tell me what that goal is and maybe we can have a conversation about that. But at the end of the day, your narrative is your narrative. And so I'm not mad at anybody out there who's mad. If you're frustrated with systems and you hate Uber and you're like pissed off at Airbnb, mm-hmm. I'm never going to be the dude to tell you that I don't think you should be pissed mm-hmm. off at Airbnb. But you're like, also not the one affirming it. Right. Well, it, yeah, well, I have the right to be honest and say I'm not pissed off by whatever it is that pisses you off. Yeah, I have that right. I love right? what you're saying because what TK is saying is, hey, look, um, I support you feeling the way you feel. And that's about all you can do because yeah. people are allowed to feel however they yeah. feel and giving them permission and accepting them and seeing them like that's beautiful. But then he's drawing the line and saying, hey, um, you can feel that way, but that doesn't mean I have to feel that way. Right. Yes. And sometimes I will feel the same way as sure. you. And even then that can't do a whole lot for you. So yeah. yeah, I hate the Airbnb guys too. I personally happen to be annoyed with them as well. But uh, what does that get us? Mm-hmm. I mean, depending on how much you value me, maybe that validates your opinion. Hey, TK Coleman agrees with me. All right. Now we got two people pissed right. off at things that piss us off. But what do we do? Like, how do we fight against yeah. that? Not, not because your emotions are not important, but because your feelings are so important that we don't want them to die as feelings alone. Mm-hmm. We want them to be channeled into constructive action that's creatively expressed. We want to bring forth some beauty from those feelings. Mm. And I think the best place to start is from a place of acceptance, right? Yeah. So there are some things I can't change. And I know that you have this narrative that Airbnb is evil and other people have this uh, this notion that Airbnb is outstanding. It harkens back to, we had Andrew Schultz on the podcast a long time ago and he had this little throwaway line, it is and it isn't. Mm-hmm. I think that is true in any situation that is complex. It is and it isn't. And yes, you can be bothered by it, but if we're not going to do anything with that bother other than throw our hands up, then I might as well go ahead and let go of the bother because that's not doing anything for me either. We got another question here. This one is from Kayla. My name is Kayla and I'm from Centralia, Illinois. Um, I'm a recent college graduate. I've got a tons of debt. I'm living with my parents, working part-time, and I'm looking for a job in my field of dietetics. Um, I wondered if you guys have any tips on kind of reducing my stuff while I'm in this weird transition period. I'm trying to kind of stick with the essentials, but right now, I don't need a lot of my own stuff because I can use my parents. However, when I get a job, then I'll be moving, and I'll need all this, these things that are currently sitting in boxes in the garage, but they make me feel kind of stressed because I feel like I have a bunch of junk sitting in the garage. So anyways, I'm just finding it difficult to balance what I'll definitely need for the future apartment versus what I can kind of let go of now. I think about boundaries when we talk about our rules that are really helpful for letting go because we set up boundaries like the seasonality rule, for Mm. example. We also call it the 90-90 rule. 
I, I actually applied this yesterday. I had a pair of shorts I hadn't worn in the last 90 days, which kind of makes sense. It was been cold where I live in Ojai, California. And I'm like, I, I didn't wear these, but then I had to be honest with myself. Okay, am I going to wear these in the next 90 days? I don't even like the way they fit me. Hmm. I got rid of them as yeah. a result. I simply donated so someone else could enjoy something that I was no longer enjoying. However, elastic boundaries work better than steel boundaries. That 90-90 rule sometimes is a little bit too loose for me. There are some mm. things where it's like, if I haven't used this in 30 days, I probably want to let it go, especially things that spoil or have an expiration date. Though that's a boundary right there on the bottle or the jar itself. And so I know when to let it go. But there's some other things, like in Kayla's situation here, she has a temporary period of time where she might have to expand her boundaries because it doesn't make sense to get rid of certain things. We have to be careful, though. If we expand our boundaries too far, you ever had like a pair of elastic underwear, Ryan, and you just stretch, stretch, stretch as a kid, and then all of a sudden it won't fit you anymore? <laughs> I, I remember that happening when uh, you guys were giving me a wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so what happens, and that's what's happening right now is, is Kayla's stuff is giving her a wedgie. <laughs> yes. And, to continue with the wedgie metaphor. <laughs> and, and, and what's happening there is she's going to reach this new boundary that is probably way too big for her life long term. Mm -hmm. But right now, she's going to have to expand that boundary. She's got to be careful not to expand it too far because you do want that boundary to probably come back to something that's more reasonable when you're in this new chapter of your life. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and what really differentiates that just in case from just for when is boundaries. It's like, do I have a clear concept of how I want to use this? And do I have a clear concept of when I want to use this by? And so it could just be really helpful to say, all right, there's some tension from keeping these things around, but I know I really need them. I'll give myself two months. Yeah. I'll give myself 30 days, whatever it is. You set the, the, the deadline based on what works for you, but give yourself a time frame for how much longer you're willing to put up with that tension. And maybe you're able to find the job and move on before you hit that time frame. And if you don't, then maybe you can take a look at those boxes and say, all right, how much do I need to reduce this by in order to be okay and in a good place mentally for the next two months, if, 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 this, if this continues to go on. Maybe I got 10 boxes now and I need to get it down to seven. You take the three boxes that are the least expensive to replace, you get rid of those things. Once you got your new job and your new income, then you can replace those things. But it's all about affordability, the best balance between affordability and what's best for you to be in the optimal state to go out there and get your career going. Yeah, come up with your own expiration date. Mm -hmm. Just you gotta hold yourself to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm. great. Another question here. This one is from Matt. This is Matt from Berlin. I think it was Joshua um, in the episode wanting to let go who said that he listens to podcasts at a higher speed. I used to do that too because I'm a podcast junkie and I listen to hours of podcasts every day. However, um, I listen to all my podcasts at normal speed again because I couldn't justify that form of consumerism with myself or my uh, quote-unquote minimalist values. So I was wondering, how do you do it, uh, respectively? What's your view on this? Matt, what a great and thoughtful question here. Hmm. I think this could be a language barrier thing as well, but the consumerism side of things, 
Yes, it can turn into consumerism if it gets in the way. So consumerism is the ideology that buying something is going to make you happy or complete. And I think you could certainly apply that to how fast you're playing your music or your podcasts or your YouTube videos or Mm -hmm. whatever you're doing. In fact, I heard that Netflix was experimenting with an increased speed on their their platform as well. So you could watch House of Cards or whatever at two times the speed or Less is now at two times the speed. Or, I mean, also, you got to be careful here, though, right? Because you're presupposing that faster now is worse. You've pathologized. Mm. And therefore, by definition, slower would be better. And then the question I would have for Matt is, do you get twice as much value if you move it to half speed, 0.5 speed? Is it any better? I think ultimately it comes down to your preferences on something like this. Mm -hmm. And Also, there's two things it comes down to preferences. And it is my preference to, I tend to listen to most things, not all things, but most things a bit faster, 1.8 to to 2.0 speed. Now, if my wife or my daughter get in the car with me and they hear like a basketball podcast playing at 2.3 speed, they're like, how do you even listen to this? I'm like, I don't know. I've trained my brain. It works really well. I enjoy it this way. Yeah. I will at, at times though, and this is the second part of the equation, I will at times slow it down to see, okay, is just is this part of conditioning or would I actually get more value from slowing it down? And the answer for me is yes, sometimes. There are some things I'm listening to that require me to slow it down. Mm. But isn't that mimetic of life? There are some things you do, you're like, I want to get through this. I want mm. to sprint right now. Yep. Sprinting is the healthy thing for me in this moment. There are other times where I just want a nice, calm, casual stroll. The question is, am I being forced to do either? If every time I had to go somewhere, I had to sprint, that would be miserable. Mm. If every time I wanted to sprint, I was unable to do so because of some arbitrary boundary that I've set up for myself that is restricting, well, that's not ideal either. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think, at what point does something become an ism, right? Because like we all consume... uh, and then, yeah, I guess when it comes to podcasts, for, if you're consuming podcasts for the sake of consuming podcasts, if you're turning it into a competition, if, uh, you know, whatever else it is, I don't know. Like, what do you all think about? Anytime a idea turns into an ideology and you hold on to a dogma, that's when it becomes an ism. Just for the sake of holding on to it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think idea plus legalism equals the ism. Legalism is when you essentially follow the letter of a law at the expense of a law by disregarding the purpose for why the law is even valuable in the mm. first place. It's, it's sort of being the little two by the book. You know, you mm. do something that's valuable, you forget the why that's behind it, and then you just do it rigorously and religiously without any uh, willingness to compromise or modify based on context. It's, it's the absence of critical and creative thinking, really. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I think the question for this type of stuff is just, rather than what's the right speed to listen to something at, or is it compatible with minimalism to listen to messages at 2X or 3X? Because that's where you get into legalism when you start, I mean, to even give answers to those types of questions can be unhealthy, right? Mm -hmm. This is where you start having rule books like, actually, the uh, according to uh, the latest minimalist catechism, 
Uh, 3X is the proper speed, but for those with special needs, anything between 1.5X and 3X is acceptable. That's how you get yourself a cult, right? Mm, yes. But it's, it's mm. about encouraging people to, to take their power back. Like, let, let me give it back to you because this is all your power and this is all about your life and the beautiful life that you're creating for mm. yourself it has nothing to do with any of our opinions. What are you optimizing for? Yeah. When Josh chooses to listen at 2X, he's optimizing for something. Mm. He says... I can turn the speed up this much without losing its entertainment value and without compromising my ability to understand what they're saying. And by doing that, I get to listen to two things within the space of one thing. He's mm. optimizing for more enjoyment. Mm. But for you, you might be saying, well, the kind of stuff I'm listening to isn't really pleasant if I'm listening to it at 1.5. So mm. I'm going to optimize for what gives me joy. And that happens to be different from what gives Josh's joy. By the way, I walked in the room on Josh one time and uh, he was listening at 10X and all I heard was, <laughs> and I just saw his eyes blinking real fast. <laughs> yeah, that's Josh. Classic Milburn. I was no, just I, uploading a podcast. Right. <laughs> to your brain? Yeah. Dude, I, what I love about this is that Matt is being deliberate. And, and that he definitely deserves uh, s- some credit for. So Matt, good on you for really thinking about how you consume your podcast and doing it in a way that makes you feel good about it. And that's what it comes down to is how do you feel about it? Because if it's just for the sake of playing it at 1X because you don't want to be a consumer, if that's what it is, I would posit, you know, if you listen at it at 0.25, you could be even more in the moment with that podcast <laughs> and be a better minimalist. I mean, that's, but it could go the complete opposite way. Yeah, yeah so, that's another form of dogma, basically. Yeah, exactly. We'll move on to some social media questions in a moment. Oh, but by the way, Matt, um, the correct speed is 1.75. <laughs> <laughs> Lori from Facebook has a question for us. I got rid of everything and sold the home I lived in for 31 years. Then my son asked if I still had the cement handprints we made with my granddaughter. I felt judged for trashing them. How can we avoid shame from others while downsizing? Here's what you do. You find another kid that's roughly <laughs> the same age. Yes. Some wet concrete. Right. <laughs> Problem yeah. solved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, that's how it is, by the way, right? You think about throwing something out for years. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the day you throw it out, hey, man, you got those mm-hmm. handprints? So, come on. Uh, I mean, yeah. And if, especially if she was holding on to it for years and then her, <laughs> her son came to her, like, th- there's no... Uh, there's no reason to feel guilty there. Like there's an expectation that your son came to you with that you had no idea that he had that apparently he was holding on to for years mm-hmm. and then dumps it on you. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand as a parent, you know, you want to take some responsibility. You want to be there for your kids. You don't want to tick them off. Um, but at the end of the day, like that son had an expectation. He didn't really share with her right? Um, in, in, in an appropriate amount of time. And I think if you want to get practical here, the thing that you can do before you get rid of something, if someone else might have some sort of tie or imaginary tie to it, you can offer it to them. Hey, I'm letting go of this. Oh, Would yeah. you like it? And yeah. if the answer is no, well, then I already gave you permission to hold on to it if you want to hold mm-hmm. on to it. But now I'm giving myself permission to let go. To get a bit more esoteric on it, judgment is a mirror that reflects the desires of other people. You often hear me say that judgment is a mirror that reflects the insecurities of other people, but it will also reflect the desires of other people. Mm. And so if someone says, how dare you got rid of those shoelaces, mm. TK, yeah, yeah. that is showing my desire to have those shoelaces or my desire for TK to wear those shoelaces <laughs> even. 
it is showing my own desires. Mm. It's not saying something universal about the principles of the world and that TK shouldn't have gotten rid of the shoelaces. It's just saying I have a preference here and it happened not his his decision happened to not coincide with my preference. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Hey, by the way, I, I really love um, your suggestion about asking ahead of time, because what that does is it gives everyone skin in the game and it eliminates the future possibility of people condemning you and holding you responsible for their disappointment. Mm-hmm. Because if they say no, then it's like they had the opportunity. So yeah. I, I just think that's a really cool thing. I, I have something else to say, but I've Sorry, man. You'll you'll think of it in a second. Yeah, I want to like use this as an opportunity to tell any parent listening to this, like if you are holding on to a storage uh, room, bedroom unit full of stuff that is your kids, um, that's very nice of you. I can see how much you you love your kids. You want to support them. Um, But it is totally reasonable for you to like send them a text, give them a phone call and be like, hey, um, on, uh, you know, July 31st, it's all gone. I'm getting rid of it. You can stop by anytime you want between now and then and get whatever you want. But if you come over after July 31st, then probably not going to be there. Yeah. There's nothing there's nothing wrong with with doing that. In fact, um setting that expectation is uh yeah, it's setting boundaries, which is what parents, you know, that's that's part of their job anyway as a parent to set boundaries for or help set boundaries for their kids. That's right. One thing I forgot to tell Lane on the question earlier is that sometimes access is greater than ownership. Right. And I think that actually strangely applies to Lori's question here. The people in your life sounds like they wanted access to those things, but maybe they didn't want to possess them themselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. It's really great if you can be my storage locker for my memories. But, well, I think they're my memories. Obviously, the memories are still in me. They're never in the things. But hey, can you hold on to this so I can feel better about it? And the answer is no, I'm not willing to hold on to something that is no longer adding value to my life. However, if you want to hold it, if you want to take care of it, mm. if you want to display it, if you want it to take up space in your home or your garage or your attic or your storage locker, you're more than welcome to hold on to it. But don't force me to hold on to your memories. Mm. That's right. Uh, one thing I want to address too at, at the heart of this question about um, when other people like shame you or give you a hard time about something. Sometimes we feel bad, not just because people say things to us to make us feel bad, but because we don't really have a response to them that we feel good about. But it's Mm. amazing how much you can deal with when you can feel good about the way you respond to people. And sometimes when people are giving you a hard time, like you take this question, for instance, you can totally diffuse that energy by saying, oh, you wanted that? Mm. Oh, my bad, man. I I, I didn't think anybody wanted it and it was just taking up space. And that's why I got rid of it. my bad, man. You know what? Next time, before I get rid of anything, I'll make sure I run it by you. Cool. Mm-hmm. And hey, if you want to, if you want to make another one, I'm, I'm, I've got some time this weekend. We can go out and we can kind of create another one, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like that. Just changes the yeah. whole energy around it when people give you a hard time. If you just have something to say that's empathetic, that's encouraging, and that's empowering, and so you don't let that other person's negative energy have to have the last word, like. I feel you, man. Yeah, that makes sense. I hear you. And you'll learn a lot about that person by how they accept your apology. Mm. Because if they use your apology to batter you with Mm. it, yeah. Oh, yeah, but you're always doing this. Uh, yeah. Now you you learn a lot about that relationship and yep. about their expectations. That says a whole lot more about the judge than it does about you. Mm. We got a question here from YouTube. Luke has something for us. Is living in a separate annex from your main home really minimalist? You caught me. <laughs> I've been Joshua Fields Milburn exposed. <laughs> 
dot com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, this question comes from a video we put up mm. on our YouTube channel just showing um, my 250 square foot home. I live separate from my, well, my wife and I have a rather unique relationship, right? I say rather unique because it's different from, well, what your average person might consider to be a traditional relationship. Mm -hmm. And what we found is something that works well for us. And the question of minimalism is what? Well, what is minimalism, right? Minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things so we can make room for life's most important things. And so the question that I have for the question asker here for Luke is living in a separate annex from your main home really minimalist? My question would be, for whom? Yeah. Because the answer might be, for you, no. For me, yes, absolutely. It enhances my life. Mm. I could see a life in which someone who owns a Porsche is a minimalist, an mm. expensive new Porsche, and they could be a minimalist. For me, that would be clutter. I don't <clears throat> desire to have that. It wouldn't enhance my life. In fact, it would decrease my quality of life because now I have to pay for a freaking Porsche, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so for me, no. Is owning a Porsche really a minimalist thing to do? Mm. For whom? Yeah. Not for me. Yeah. I love that, man. I mean, and that goes with any type of judgments or reflection or whatever it is that someone wants to um, offer when they see something that doesn't look minimalist. It's like, oh, it's, that's good to know for you, Luke, that mm -hmm. that's not minimalist. Awesome. Like you're discovering your boundaries. And that's really why the three of us do this. And understanding your boundaries might change over time. Yeah. You know, Bex and I tried the living together full-time thing, and it just didn't work for us for a bunch of reasons, mainly because I'm such an introvert, and I like to spend so much time alone. And thankfully, Bex is pretty similar to me in that respect. And so we're compatible in a way that might look strange to an outsider who conforms to societal ideals, which doesn't which is also not wrong either, right? Mm -hmm. If that works for you, it works for you. But if it doesn't work for someone else, it doesn't mean it should work for them. Yeah. When I hear that question, is it really minimalist? I, I hear the voice of Morpheus in my head <laughs> leaning forward saying, what is real, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and to say that something is real is to say that it exists independently of our preferences and our taste, right? You may not like it, but it is so. You may not agree with it, but that's the fact, my man. It is real. And I would say that that minimalism is not objective. Like really minimalism is, a, is, is for me a contradiction in terms because minimalism is by its nature subjective. It is for the experiencer, for the person. It's about aligning your life with your preferences and priorities and your principles. And so all comes back to that, those three Ps again. It's like, what's optimal living for you? What's simplicity for you? What's clutter for you? There is no really, is it really minimalist? It's, is it minimalist for TK? Is it minimalist for Josh? Is it minimalist for you? And so the more we can get out of that, there is some standard for minimalism that exists independently of each individual minimalist themselves that's where the danger is. And I wish okay. it was that way. I wish there was a manual for it. Yeah. We did that jokingly, creating the minimalist rule book. And then you find out, oh, these are just boundaries that you can adjust or you can throw them out altogether. No, yeah. I don't want that one at all. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah, You don't have to have it. Be and by the way, you could still be a real minimalist right. without those rules. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because I almost want to ask like, what is a real minimalist? Oh, yeah. You know, like, I mean, we could, you could really get granular with that whole line of reasoning. Anyway, let's tune over to, uh, turn over to Instagram. Elisa has a question for us. 
why are you guys so against storage bins? Not all of us live in LA and we have things called seasons. Plus, it's more sustainable than repurchasing every season. Can't we live minimally and still store items? I think Hmm. this is a response to an Instagram video that we put out there where we were not I think railing against storage bins so much as excess. Yeah, was it my um, no one wins with storage bins? Yes. Minimal maxim. Yeah, and so Uh, the easiest way to organize your stuff is to get rid of most of it. And then if you have stuff beyond that that needs to be stored, I think storage bins, and we even said in that video... The, the the easiest place to keep it might be a store. The best place to keep it might be a storage bin. Mm. The problem is not storage bins. When I say the easiest way to get rid of most of your stuff, I mean to get rid of excess because most of our stuff in America and in the Western world and now throughout the entire world is often excess. Yeah. The average American household has 300,000 items in it, not a problem if it's bringing you great contentment, joy, tranquility, enhancing your life. But if it's getting in the way, it's excess. And simply putting it in a storage bin is amplifying the problem because it's hiding the problem. Mm, yeah. Lisa, I got to throw it on the gauntlet. Everybody does live in L.A. <laughs> in their dreams, uh, in their heart of hearts. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I don't live in LA. I don't want to. But yeah, we're not against storage bins. Um, we're, we're for you doing whatever you need to do in in a way that's best for you. You know, I'm not for them or against them. It's yeah. more like I mean, I Mariah and I, mean, I have a couple storage bins. I sure as heck wish I didn't need them though. Yeah, and when I have to dig in them, I hate digging in them. Like it's not. No one feels great about having storage bins. Uh, is it a necessity sometimes? This, this is the first time I've never owned storage bins now. Mm, wow. Weird flex, but all right. But, <laughs> well, I, I say I should say in California, it's actually mm. the first time. But before we moved to California and we were in Montana, I didn't have storage bins. I didn't have storage bins in my last place in Dayton, Ohio. Mm. And yet, I mean, you could talk about a place that has four seasons. Yeah. I didn't need storage bins in Dayton, Ohio. I needed Mm -hmm. them here because I lived in a really small space and I just didn't have room for a few things that I needed access to. And so I had a couple storage bins when it made sense. And so if it makes sense to you, I'm not against storage bins. What I'm against is excess. But excess for me might be perfectly appropriate for you. Well, dude, maybe someone really likes uh, setting up their lights for Christmas. And like it's, you know, they look at it as their art. You know, mm-hmm. of course, like they're going to need a place to keep that stuff um, somewhere until Christmas time rolls around. Although I would challenge you just leave it out all year round. That's what TK would do. I love Christmas lights. Anyway, um, <laughs> my wife left. So, so for, the, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, for this person who loves Christmas lights, awesome. Like have a storage bin. Keep, but if I had a storage bin full of Christmas lights, it'd drive me crazy. Yeah. Because it doesn't add value to my life. I don't look at it as something that I need to display or participate in. Um, Yeah. And by the way, if you had a storage bin filled with Christmas lights, what would happen? They would never even get put out. You would just have a bin perpetually filled with things you don't use. And that is often the problem with storage bins. Out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. Well, we say that, but that's not really true. It's not out of sight, out of mind. It's out of sight and move to the back of my mind so I can worry about it later. The problem can amplify later. And now all of a sudden I'm in bed at 3 a.m. and I just woke up and oh, but what about the 
thing that's in the storage bin? What about mm-hmm. the storage closet? What about the storage locker? What about my attic? What about my basement? What about the walk-in closet? They're filled with things. And by the way, I don't even know what's in those storage bins now. Yeah. No, I don't have a problem with storage bins. I have a problem with excess. Yeah. Mallory from Facebook has a question. No relation. <laughs> Why is hidden clutter the most toxic form of clutter? Mm. Well, I just talked about this a moment ago, but the stuff that is out of sight is not out of mind. It takes up space in the back of your psyche. So yes, it'll be out of sight, out of mind in the moment, but you're actually punishing your future self by hiding it. And that's toxic. You're being toxic to your future self. Mm. We do this with debt, but When we hide clutter, what happens? We hide clutter. It's being toxic toward our future self. We're going into debt by forcing our future self to deal with something we don't want to deal with right now. Mm. Yeah, Mm. the the lack of awareness concerning a problem doesn't negate the existence of the problem itself. So think about like a, a pest problem. If you have a pest problem, you have a pest problem, whether you know about it or not. But it's better to know about it, right? But that means things are going to look like they're worse because it might be visible. But it's better for you to know that because Mm. then you can do something about it. If you don't know about it, it doesn't mean the problem doesn't exist. It just means that the problem is spreading, spreading and getting worse. And it's eventually going to explode in a way that just costs more time, energy, money and resources. So why is hidden clutter the most toxic form of clutter? For the same reason that an undiagnosed disease is arguably the most toxic because even if it's small, even if it's treatable, it can slowly and steadily eat away at your life because you're just not even aware that there's a problem. You know, you tend to treat a problem like it's an ally or like an innocent party when you don't know that it's there. Mm. That's dangerous, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Mm. Yeah, clutter is the disease of clutter in a way, right? Yeah. Because what happens is it metastasizes to all other areas of your life. That's right. That's why when we did the Simplify Everything course, it wasn't just about physical clutter you realize like, oh, I've got all this digital clutter. I've got all this calendar clutter, career clutter, information clutter, relationship clutter, financial clutter in my life. That's what what happened. It metastasized to every area of my life. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know what to add to that gentleman. I mean, hidden clutter, it's almost like, it's so obvious to me how it is toxic because um, yeah, it shows that your life is... um, not out of control, but it's uh, not very organized. Yeah. And to me, that that clutter, that hidden clutter is more of a symptom than it is like the problem. Well, when I published this, uh, it was a, a minimal maxim that we had, uh, a messy home is a sign of dysfunction. Mm-hmm. A lot of people got really upset by that. Mm. Professor Sean was telling me and sending me screenshots and stuff that people were upset because They thought that I was saying you're a bad person, I guess, that I was pathologizing it. It doesn't mean I think you're mentally ill or you're a bad person or you're weak or whatever it might be. It is merely a sign of dysfunction. If I have a messy home, it means it is not functioning optimally and therefore it is dysfunction. That's right. And, And you have to have a vocabulary for dysfunction in order to be healthy, right? Because what does it mean to be healthy other than to function optimally? And so I need some kind of mechanism for knowing when things are off. And I need the ability to do that without condemning myself as bad. But yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. 
Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. During the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. Today's question is from Homer. I just recently watched your video of Dr. John Deloney's wife telling him he has enough after he got new speaking opportunities he wanted. Why can't she just say congratulations or I'm proud of you? Let me give you some context here. This video really blew up three, four, five million views all over the place. Oh, wow. People were really upset. And I found especially guys were very upset. Oh, my goodness. John Deloney's wife. Wow. And so it seems to me that they really missed the point. In that video, Dr. Deloney basically said, hey, I was going through really difficult times and I would psych myself up by getting more work. And what would happen is she heard a moment ago, she heard me devastated, like, oh, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so busy. My life is out of control. Mm -hmm. And then a moment later, what happened? She heard him shouting for joy in the basement because he got another speaking gig, another opportunity. And what she was trying to illustrate is, I want you to understand that we already have enough. And if you want to do this, wonderful. But if you don't want to do it, realize you're not doing this for me and our Mm. family. You're doing it for you. Mm. And that's okay. Yeah. So I got something pithy for you. My pithy answer is, it's offensive to get offended on behalf of people who are not offended. Mm. (laughs) That offends me. (laughs) I think. (laughs) See, Dr. John Deloney was not offended, but a lot of people got offended that his wife would talk to Mm. him this way. Yeah. But he was actually thankful for it. So it's another layer of offensive to be like, hey, you shouldn't be thankful for that, TK. You should also be offended Mm. on my behalf. Well, no, I choose not to be offended. And if you want to be offended... Go ahead and be offended. I'm not going to hold on to it. Yeah. Let's give man. TK Coleman 60 seconds on the clock. Beware the friend who can't say. What is it? What do you got here? You you're me. not okay. Yeah. So let me say it again. <laughs> Beware the friend who can't say you're not okay. Uh, you know, I, I don't think a, a good friend is somebody who should force themselves to be happy for you no matter what. Right. Um, they, they can support your mission, but still question your method. They can advocate for your well-being without treating you like you could never possibly be wrong. Sometimes support, it takes the form of saying, hey, congratulations. Good job. I'm so happy for you. But sometimes support takes the form of, hey, man, I'm a little bit concerned. Mm-hmm. To me, the real privilege of friendship is that the context of our already established love makes it possible for me to challenge you and get away with that in ways that other people can't. Anybody can get away with feeding your ego. A complete stranger can say, wow, you look great and get away with that. Mm -hmm. A friend is someone that can get away with saying, hey, let me play devil's advocate with that idea. Hey, I'm a little concerned about this. Hey, I have a problem with what you just said and how you said it. Because the two of you can talk things out in a way where you can get to the bottom of it without your love for one another being questioned. So support isn't always about congratulations. Sometimes it's about challenging. Yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Ryan Nicodemus. Makes me think how uh, when someone tells me I got something in my teeth, when I actually do have something in my teeth, I'm like, oh, you and I could be friends. 
<laughs> I, th- I think this might yep. work out. Hell yeah. Because a real friend is going to say something like that. Uh, right. My pithy answer is this. If you think love is risky, just wait until you find out how risky it is to avoid love. Here's the thing. When you get into a relationship, especially a romantic, long-term, committed relationship, um, you have to be prepared to risk that relationship. And if you're not prepared to risk that relationship, you may not be prepared for that long-term committed relationship. The last thing I want is Mariah to um, hold some resentment towards me uh, and and not even let me know what she's upset about for the sake of just going with the flow. (laughs) We all know what happens when you go with the flow. You end up at the falls. So Mariah and I have an agreement. If something bothers us, we make sure to say something because we don't want to hold that in because we do love each other and we love each other so much that we can have a mature conversation without feeling like one of us is is being controlled or, or overlooked by the other. I love that. If you think love is risky, just wait until you find out how risky it is to avoid love. Mm. And I think that applies not just to intimate relationships. It certainly applies there, but applies to a friendship. It applies to a stranger. To love someone is to see them for who they are. And what happens when we get offended by someone? Mm. We try to change them. You, I'm going to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. And there's no risk in, in, well, there is risk in that, right? Mm -hmm. But it's much more risky to sit back and actually see someone for who they are because you might realize something Mm. about yourself. You know, by the way, this reaction to John Deloney's story just goes to show you like how many amazing life-changing conversations have we all had one-on-one with somebody who questioned us or challenged us in an important way. Mm -hmm. Think about how confusing and overwhelming and stressful and toxic it would be if that conversation were broadcasted on the internet for everyone to express their opinion about it. Oh my goodness. Oh. Man, you know, yeah. you'd lose so much value. I'm, I'm so thankful that there are conversations that still happen in private, one-on-one, without the internet telling us what we think about it. And I understand the irony, like he chose to share that story. None of us are victims here. I totally get it. But it just kind of makes me think about in healthy relationships, You got to be okay with the fact that this relationship is good Mm -hmm. because what we're doing is good for you and I. And and other people aren't going to be good with the way that you and I do good. But what matters is that you and I are good with it. Yeah. And and honestly, like Deloney's wife, uh, it really seems like this is a loving act on her part. Like how difficult is it for her to go to him and say, hey, you know what? Like, I just want to make this observation. Mm-hmm. about everything that just transpired. The she didn't e- even tell him what to do. Yeah, no. the, yeah, right. The easy thing is to be like, oh, congratulations. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. The tough thing and what someone would do, uh, and I hope Mariah would do with me or or Josh or Tika or anyone in the studio, it's like, if you have a problem with me or if you see that see something that I'm not seeing, please say something. Like, that's, yeah. that is so valuable, man. And yeah. I saw what is loving, especially because she simply made, as Ryan said, an observation. Yeah. And that is important. And I, TK, you bring up a great point. If we live streamed all of our co- intimate conversations and allowed people to comment on it, I think it would radically change our, we, we'd be afraid to love someone mm-hmm. because of the backlash we might get. That's, that, that said, I did live stream TK's entire hospital stay last week. <laughs> it's only available on our Patreon. Yeah, that, was, uh, that wasn't Michelle. That was Josh with the VHS camcorder <laughs> live streaming it. Dude, so so when, I, when I say risking relationship, do you guys know what that 
Does that resonate with you at all? Go for it. So to risk a relationship is to go to someone and deliver them a truth at at, at the potential cost of that relationship changing. Yes. And what I'll say is that if we don't risk relationships, especially with the people that we love as much as, you know, Deloney and, and his wife love each other or, or their kids for that matter, if, we, if we're not willing to risk that relationship, like that is, I don't know what's worse, like um, risking the relationship or holding on to this resentment and never saying anything because I'm too scared to risk the relationship. Regardless though, the relationship is being risked. You might yeah. as well do it in a genuine way. That's yeah. such a great point. We're going to check really in with profound. the Patreon live stream here in a moment. So patrons, drop your questions and comments in the chat. We already have a few lined up. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here is one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. Some exciting new, uh, brand new news, y'all. We're calling it renewed minimalism this episode, right? Because our first documentary, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things, is getting a third life. Yeah, yeah. After being the number one documentary in theaters in 2016, we did. In fact, I hadn't seen the film since it was in theaters in 2016. I just rewatched it recently. I'm going to talk to you about that. It also got 80 million plus views on Netflix. Seven years on Netflix. Minimalism is now on YouTube. YouTube.com slash The Minimalist. It just came out yesterday, June 18th. And we had that theatrical release, which I learned a whole lot. Ryan learned a whole lot from that. 2016, we went to Netflix. They were the only big streamer at the time. There's some others like CISO, I think was still around. Mm. But there wasn't all of these other streamers. We went to Netflix and said, hey, can you, would you be willing, would you like this documentary? And they're like, no, no, it doesn't really fit what we're doing. Okay, well, we're the minimalists. We always do these things on our own. We've been doing these huge tours and writing books and doing everything when there were just two people showing up. And now there are more people showing up. We didn't have the podcast at the time. We just had the blog and some books. And so we said, we'll put it out in theaters. How hard can that be? Well, it turns out really, really difficult. (laughs) And uh, everyone has their hand in the cookie jar when you do that. 400 theaters, US, Canada, Australia. And we had a really wildly successful theatrical release. And I say that now because it was the number one indie doc in theaters in 2016, which sounds really impressive to realize when the hell was the last time I went to go see a documentary (laughs) in a theater, right? And the the truth is that, yeah, a lot of people went to go see it in theaters, but not nearly as many uh, as people who sold online. So we went back to Netflix after the theatrical. He said, look, we did it. Look how awesome this was. And they're like... Uh, uh, no. You didn't hear no the first right. time? Right. And we're like, oh, no, oh, I guess we didn't. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll go put it on our own. So we put it out, a uh, transactional video. So uh, iTunes and Amazon and uh, Vimeo and Google Play Store. And it was available online. Our audience went out and supported it so much so that it became really popular on iTunes. It was the number one film on iTunes uh, that first month that it came out online. And that's when Netflix came back to us and they were like, hey, uh, you know that whole documentary thing? Can we get the streaming rights to it? And so we said, sure. And they got the English rights and then it went, it, it just really took off on Netflix. Yeah. And then they got the international rights and they re-upped. And then seven years, minimalism was on Netflix and over 80 million views over there. A lot of people saw it. A lot of people heard this message for the first time. In fact, if you do a Google Trends search on the word minimalism, December 2016, when it hit Netflix, all of a sudden, I mean, parabolic. It was, it, it was this huge increase. That's awesome. 
And I went back recently for the first time in years and watched the film because I was trying to tweeze out, I got to find like five or six different TikToks so we can promote the film on social media, right? Mm -hmm. And let people know that it's getting a third life on the Minimalist YouTube channel. By the way, 100% advertisement free still. Yeah. And uh, so no advertisements on our YouTube channel either. And we just wanted to put it out there because we finally got the rights back to the film. And we said, okay, we have the rights now. We want to get it in front of more eyeballs. We're not going to make any money from putting it on YouTube, but we're going to reach more people if we put it out on YouTube. And so I went to Matt Diavella, got the film, rewatched it, looked for about six different TikToks. And it turns out Matt Diavella invented TikTok. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> I believe that. <clears throat> the film is put together in one minute chunks. I never realized that. But I mean, literally... A lot of the, the the clips I pulled out, 79-minute film, I found 80 TikToks in the what? film. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to say we're going to put out all 80 of those, but there are That's 80 incredible. clips that could certainly just make it. And they're, they are influential. They are effective on their own. But then when you piece them all together, he created a masterpiece of a film. Dude. He's a savant when it comes to directing, but even more so when it comes to editing. Hey, they don't call him the Italian stallion for no reason, man. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think I just made that up? (laughs) So you can watch it right now on the Minimalist YouTube channel or at minimalism.com. Our side project is called Minimalism Life. We have the domain minimalism.com. So if you're just looking for an easy place to look for it and share it, minimalism.com. Share it with someone who you think, tag someone who you think will get value from this film. If you've seen it and you want to rewatch it now, is a great opportunity to do so for free, 100% advertisement free. Let's check in with the Patreon live stream, Alabama. What do you got for us? Catherine had a question. Will the bonus content for the minimalism documentary still be available to purchase? What a great question. Yes, it will. Uh, if you want, there's six. So here's the other problem we had. 79-minute film, but we, we filmed about a 1,000 hours of footage. Yeah. Now, most of that was Ryan and Matt looking at sunsets and time-lapse sunrises. <laughs> well, I mean, I can't help it, man. I'm a sucker for a sunset. <laughs> he and Matt had the most romantic year oh in 2014. God. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't think I've ever deliberately watched that many sunsets with someone. Like, because <laughs> we did watch a lot. Yeah, we've been in the most beautiful places. We've been like Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it's oh, just yeah. stunning Gordon, there. Yeah. So a lot of what you see in the film, the sunset, sunrise, the time-lapse things, the stars and the Nevada. That's all Matt and Ryan hanging out, just watching the stars for a while and filming it, mm-hmm. setting up a tripod and waiting for many hours. Mm-hmm. But also, we filmed a lot of interviews, many interviews that didn't make the film or extended versions of, like, Sam Harris is in the film for, like, four minutes, but we interviewed him for an hour. Mm-hmm. Or Dan Harris, we interviewed him for an hour. Patrick Roan interviewed mm-hmm. him for an hour or two. And all of those interviews, six hours of additional interviews we have over at Minimalism film.com. Professor Sean will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Let's do one more live stream. I'm trying to think who I'm trying to think who was in that bonus footage that we really wanted to make in the film, but they couldn't make it in the film, but they are in the is it, I'm thinking like Crew Spence, maybe or yeah, Crew okay. Spence. Uh we had Andrew Clifford Capener who did the oh, music yeah, for the film. We right. did a stunning, a beautiful, beautiful interview with him. Yes. In this like Quonset hut house mm. and is all steel and it was a stunning minimalist and he's really really attractive too he's a very handsome man it just <laughs> didn't fit the film yeah and 
that happened. There were some amazing interviews. It simply didn't fit the film. So yeah, minimalismfilm.com if you want to check those out. Here's a question that came from Bridget. What are your thoughts on how the death of a parent affects one's identity? Hmm. TK, you have both your parents, thankfully. T. Ryan, you have both of your parents, thankfully. Yeah. I've heard this phrase that you don't know who you are as a human or you don't become an adult until you've lost both of your parents. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that's completely true, but I think there's an essence of that where, yes, you realize like, oh, I'm sort of in it all alone now. There's no one here to take care of me anymore. I grew up in a pretty chaotic home, so there wasn't someone to take care of me for a really long time. And so I think I developed into an adult much sooner than that. But I can see where we have a dependence on someone, and even it's a psychological dependence. When that tether is untethered, all of a sudden there's a freedom there, but there's also an uncertainty created by that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> we harmonize mm. yeah <laughs> you know I, I i think each relationship in, in some ways is is kind of defined by the unique things that those people invoke from one another and so when you lose someone period you lose those aspects of yourself i think about my best friend ej who i lost at 21 it's like there's just a certain way he made me laugh that i'll never laugh again and and it's not out of sheer determination it's not a refusal it's just that He's not here to provoke that particular brand of laughter from me. And so we lose parts of ourselves when we lose people because of that in some kind of way. But I've never uh, lost my parents. And and if and if you have to lose them to become a complete human being, I hope I never become a complete human being. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. mm. I love them so much, man. And uh, I'm, I'm super, super passionate about, you know, being able to, to look at a question and say, I'm not worthy to answer that one. I don't have the experience. I don't have the hard-earned wisdom to say anything about how it affects a person to lose their parents. I've got some close friends who've gone through that and I've, I've never tasted that. Yeah. And um, God, God help me if, if, if that day were to come mm. for me. Yeah. yeah. Makes me think of a couple of things. First, um, I'm going to call my mom after this podcast. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I was going to call her after this podcast. <laughs> you know what, man? I'll, t- I'll tell her. I'll tell her to call you when I'm done. Quit. Quit. <laughs> TK's done. <laughs> See you, TK. We'll call your mom, too. Uh, man, they are, so, you know, I got my parent. I got to appreciate them as much as I can. Um, the second thing is... Uh, Man, how grateful I am that they taught me to to count on myself and not count on them. Because I think that's where a lot of maybe the um, the identity changes is when you rely on your parents so much for whatever it is. It may not be, you know, um, anything huge. Maybe it's just support, you know. It's just someone you can call and get some support on when, when you're feeling down. And then when you don't have that, now, yeah, yeah I can imagine it'd be like an identity crisis. Oh, no, who do I call now? Who's yeah. going to support me now? Yeah, it goes back to the it is and it isn't. Mm -hmm. When my mom died, it was one of the worst things that happened to me. It was also one of the best things that happened to me. None of us would be here in this room right now if she had lived. When she died, it made me question everything. Mm. When you get into some sort of accident or crash in life, you have this moment and you get to decide, how am I going to course correct from here? And for me, it opened up a whole bunch of other questions. 
what is truly important in my life? Who is the person I want to become? Mm-hmm. How am I going to redefine success? Why have I given meaning to all these material possessions? What's truly important in my life? I'd never asked those questions before, and so I followed this path, and I realized the path I was headed down, the destination was misery, was discontent. And by the way, the path was also paved with subtle miseries and subtle discontents. And my mom's death, while it was awful, and I never wanted that to happen, I certainly did become a different person after that. Mm. And the reason I did, she, I thank her for that, even today because she helped me ask those questions. Her death helped me ask those questions that got me off of that path and Mm. helped me create my own path. Mm. We're gonna check back in with the Patreon live stream here in a little bit. But first, Alabama, what else you got for us? I gotta call Mama Bama. (laughs) But also, here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. Hey, minimalists. My name is Jenny, and I'm calling from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I want to say a heartfelt thank you for your podcast and messages on minimalism. I have been a minimalist for years and have struggled visiting my mother and father-in-law's home due to the excess and hoarding tendencies. This past weekend, I was at their house helping them clean out 30-plus years of clutter. While they parted with hundreds of items, I was reminded that we are all working on our own timeline. Often, when we come to minimalism, we want to share the life-changing benefits with everyone, and we want them to become a minimalist too, according to our timeline. This is a gentle reminder to continue to lead by example. Even if it seems no one is watching, they actually are. Thank you so much for everything you do. With love. Welcome back, y'all. We'll get into some more Patreon live stream questions in a moment. So drop your questions and comments in the chat. I got a talk aboutable for y'all today. Was today a good day or a bad day? (laughs) Yes. Are you at peace or are you mired in chaos? Yes. Here's a video from Cameron Rosen about the power of your words. Mm, This dude's great. It's quite important that you know that the universe says yes to whatever it is we speak in this process. We speak things into being. There is no other answer than yes. I've had a really bad week. Yes. I'm really stressed out. Yes. I'm lost and I'm confused and I don't know what to do. Yes, yes, yes. Good things happen to me all the time. Yes. I see abundance everywhere I look. Yes, I know that my path is unfolding and everything I experience is serving me through growth. Yes, 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 yes. Remember this. Remember that what you hold in this space of consciousness unfolds in physical reality. First, you need to see that it is, though. Yes, it's... Reminds me of Henry Ford, Mm. whether you say you can or you can't, you're right. But Mm -hmm. this is a twist on that. The answer is yes. Have I had a bad day? Yes. Have I had a good day? (laughs) Yes. What is my framing here? Mm -hmm. We talked about this earlier with respect to being bothered. You can choose to be bothered as much as you want. You can cling to being bothered. Am I bothered? Yes. Ah, okay. Am I grateful? 
Yes. Mm-hmm. And that is the yes that I would prefer to affirm. The thing that is more empowering, the thing that allows me to let go than holding on to the thing mm. that drags me in a direction of misery. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm down with the stuff that he was talking about, but I'm curious because why do you not think that that's woo-woo? I think it's what Rob Bell calls the appropriate amount of woo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, w- no, no, we're okay with woo. It's <laughs> just not woo, woo. No, woo, woo. Woo is excessive. <laughs> no, man, I mean, it's, I said it earlier in the podcast, uh, you know. Um, Sorry, man. It's like, <laughs> I already answered this. Where, where, no, no, I mean, it's, it's where energy flows, attention goes. And uh, that's exactly what he's talking about here. It's like, what yeah. do you want to focus on? Mm-hmm. This made me think of the Sedona method, honestly, because sometimes it ain't so easy to just be like, all right, man, stop telling the universe that you're having a bad week. I mean, you, you know, I legit feel like I'm having a bad week. Mm-hmm. So then the question isn't like, how do I lie to myself? The question is, is like, how can I take a moment uh, and redirect whatever that feeling is, let it go, and then I can start maybe going towards um, something more positive. This isn't, this isn't instructions, again, on just for you to lie to yourself. It's instructions to, uh, or it's leverage for someone who has a hard time getting out of that, that, tailspin when they are in a negative emotion. It's like, this is the leverage to be like, hey, no matter how you do it, what's important is you do find a way to focus on that positive stuff. And ultimately, it's about what am I affirming? What am I saying yes to? Mm -hmm. Because it is and it isn't. Yes, it is chaotic. Yes, it is peaceful. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm having a good day. Yes, I'm having a bad day. Depending on what I'm affirming, that becomes true. Yeah. And it's, as I talked about earlier, it's not b- about being a Pollyanna about the whole thing, right? It's not about blind optimism because forcing yourself to be a yes man is not going to work either. Mm. Although here's the thing, you're a yes man either way and a yes woman either way. It's what are you saying yes to? Yeah. And by the way, there are some uh, practical ways to raise your vibration, so to speak, without lying to yourself. And one way is is by focusing more on how a thought makes you feel than on like the literalism of what exact words I'm using. Hmm. So um, who was it? Thomas Trowert who said, uh, it is thought which creates the form, but it's feeling that gives the vitality to thought. So let's take your scenario where you're like, hmm. man, life is really chaotic right now. Just like sit with that thought for a little bit. How does hmm. that feel in your body? How does it make you feel to say that life is really hmm. chaotic right now? Now, what can I say to raise my vibration up a little bit without lying to myself? If I say, life is not chaotic, it's actually really great. Nah, I can feel myself mm-hmm. lying, BSing myself there. Yeah. But I could say, it, it would be nice if life felt a little bit simpler. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's a higher vibrational thought, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm, I'm being aspirational. I'm not pretending like it is that way now, but I'm saying it would be nice if life felt a little bit simpler. And you can affirm that with a yes. Mm-hmm. And, and then you can, you can take it a little further and say something like, you know, there are times in the past when things didn't feel a certain way and I was able to get it turned around. Mm-hmm. Yes. That might be possible here too. Yeah. You know, oh, that vibration's coming up a little bit now, you know? And I, I still don't have to lie to myself. Yeah. I wonder if I can learn something new to get a different kind of result out of this situation and you can kind of keep working. Anyway, yeah. a way to get to yes without lying to yourself. Yeah, that's great, man. We got an obsolete object here. This one is from Stephanie. Can you read what Stephanie had to say? And then we'll put, a, we'll put this up on the screen. 
because I think we've all faced something like that, this, and it may even be exactly this at some point in time. What does Stephanie have to say? 17 years before she passed, my grandmother snuck some things from when we were going through the loss of my mother, her daughter. Out of the purging and the sorting, I found duplicates of many things, including three VCRs from the same manufacturer. After researching what to do, I settled on taking it to a big box store for recycling, since the next citywide recycling events weren't scheduled until the following spring. Now, this is obsolete for a few reasons here. One is it was held on by someone who wasn't getting any value from it. And now it's being passed down to someone else who isn't going to get any value from it. And it's obsolete because there are also duplicates as well. Now, I remember a time way back in the day, there were some people who were fancy and they had two VCRs yeah. so they could they could take one VCR tape from like Blockbuster <laughs> and then tape it so they would have a, a copy of it yeah. at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he won't name names because it is a felony. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for the statute of limitations. <laughs> Ryan was like, he won't call out his boy because they've been boys for a real long time. Hey, Josh, just remember that stitch, snitches get stitches, right? <laughs> yeah, so, um, but that is no longer a requirement. Yeah. And so it's obsolete in that sense as well. Mm. And I think that the VCR is a synecdoche for the greater problem of hoarding. Something we got value from, immense value from at some period of time. Mm -hmm. For those of us who are old enough to remember the VCR, like it was a wonderful value-adding experience mm. for our home. Mm-hmm. You could go to the video rental place. We go to Video Gallery or to Blockbuster and our family video. Mm-hmm. And we would go there and spend an hour finding the right movie. It created the experience, none of which was possible without the mm-hmm. VCR. You're not going to go to Blockbuster without the VCR at home because then you'd just be wasting your time. So it helped create the experience. However, that experience is gone. Much like Blockbuster is out of business, Mm. your VCR is out of business. Mm. It is no longer doing the thing that you used it to do. What else in your house is the equivalent? Because it's easy to see with the VCR, Mm. but there might be a spatula, there might be a hat, there might be a shovel or a rake. There might mm. be a chair. There might be uh, countless things in your home that you got value from once upon a time. But now, just like your VCR, they're obsolete. Yeah. These obsolete objects are, it's a form of hidden clutter because it, it added so much value at one time that we never stopped to consider. Has it stopped adding value? We never stopped to consider do we have any obsolete objects in our home? We hang on to it because, well, that's what we're used to. Yeah. yeah. I want I want to know why she had three of them. That's really that's like the <laughs> question that I want to ask. Why did she buy three of them? I think she was probably selling bootleg copies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she was producing films. Well, that makes sense. Selling them to Blockbuster <laughs> as exclusives, <laughs> but recording them. Well, you know what's cool now is like if you have a VHS that you really, really, uh, you know, it, let's say it's a home movie because, I mean, I can't imagine any VHSs that wouldn't be available, you know, on that, that aren't available on streaming services now. But if it's something unique that's only on the VHS, you can go and spend very little money to get that converted over to uh, a digital file. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's way easier to store <laughs> and you can get rid of your VCR <laughs> if you convert everything over to your to digital files. Or your stack of VCRs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. 
Yeah. Hey, man, I got nothing to add. I don't, I don't want to, uh, <laughs> hey, that's my I don't, don't want to give excess. So. <laughs> well, and it might have been that that was appropriate, you know, at some point, if she had like a lot of grandkids or a lot of kids and you needed to entertain them with different movies for different ages. When my grandmother passed away, we found out mm. she had seven crock pots. Mm. Seven is so many. And we all went, my gosh, where were these all hiding? But we forgot. She used those crock pots every single week to feed the seniors at her church. Aww. That was appropriate while she was still here. Once she passed on, it was no longer appropriate to hold on to that. And that's what I want to applaud Stephanie for, is that she recognized that this is no longer in need right now. This mm. is not appropriate for us. We can let it go. Yeah. And, and you don't have to hold on to their rituals either. It's great yeah. that she did that. But now yeah. if inheriting that crock pot also meant I had to commit myself to several hours a week of cooking for other people. Now, and I think that's that's what we don't realize. Quite often we inherit an object from someone. There's some other obligation that goes along with it. Yeah. And it could be as simple as cleaning it or storing it or taking care of it. But it could be that, oh, now I'm committing hours of my life to upkeep whatever this obsolete thing is. Yeah. I love that ability to, to not hold on to it without hating on her for having had it in the first place. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We got a minimalist home tour for y'all today. This is number 41 in our series. We're calling this one Teaching Old Furniture New Tricks. This is from <laughs> Kim. What did Kim have to say? She said, when we did our renovation four years ago, the architects wanted to take some space from my son's bedroom, which is the smallest bedroom in the house, for a linen closet. Thanks to you guys, we were able to say, no thanks. We don't need a closet because we don't have a lot of stuff. Mm. The small blue upcycled piece of furniture is enough to store all of our towels and toilet paper. The wall hung vanity keeps our toothbrushes off the counter and the mirrored cabinet holds the rest of our toiletry items. Wow. I'm feeling like less of a minimalist each day. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many towels. Oh my goodness. Danny was just up in Ojai and using all of our towels. <laughs> you should have seen him and Amy. I don't know what they were doing in there. <laughs> But every towel was you. No, we uh, took it as a challenge. We have yeah. we, we um I have an ice bath in the backyard and I do a sauna now. And so I use a bunch of I actually bought more towels recently. And so thankfully we had a cabinet in our bathroom that fits exactly all of our towels. Mm. I couldn't buy any more towels at this point. But when I before we had that, I didn't need as many towels. So the question is like, is this enough space? For whom? For what? For mm. when? Right? Yeah. Because what time you are in your life right now will dictate how many towels you need. And I, it's great, Kim, that this is uh, perfect for you. And you didn't have to completely tear apart your kid's bedroom in order to store a few towels or blankets. And here's what happens. We, we talked about this. And there's actually the scene in uh, our last Netflix film, Less Is Now, where I'm talking about my mom's um, her house and I'm going through it and I'm like, her kitchen was filled with mismatched plates and cups and bowls and ill-assorted utensils and her bathroom was stuffed with enough hygiene products to start a small beauty supply business mm. <laughs> and her linen closet, it looked like someone was <laughs> running a hotel out of her linen closet, Man. Yeah. which was stuffed with mis mis mismatched bath towels and dish towels and beach towels and bed sheets and blankets and quilts, mm. none of which she used. I mean, she used a few of them, yeah. but most of it, it even smelled a little musty because it was just sitting in there taking up space, crammed floor to ceiling, shelf to shelf with stuff, stuff, stuff. It was stuffed with stuff. Yeah. And yet what you see here is when you have the appropriate amount of space, it makes you get rid of those things that were probably you're just holding on to just in case. Mm -hmm. Just in case. Yeah. yeah. 
that uh, I love that hardwood floor, that dark like cherry. It's freaking awesome. And then also I can tell that she's probably um, in Europe somewhere because of the little the the towel warmer. Mm. I feel is like that what that is. Yeah. Oh, I, that's so cool. I feel like um, like there's a lot of things I see over there that they have figured out. And I'm like, why have we not adopted this? <laughs> like the towel warmer is great. You put your towel in there. You get out of the shower. Nice and toasty. Um, and I'm just stuck with my cold towel, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> he gets it out of the freezer. <laughs> These towels suck. This is a really unpleasant experience. <laughs> you have a, you have a, a, yeah, a cold plunge. <laughs> <laughs> you have a cold towel. Yes. <laughs> oh, shoot. All right. Let's check back in with the Patreon live stream. Alabama, what do you got for us? Here's a question from Catherine. There are cooking magazines that I was ready to give away, but then I started going through them. I didn't use them much, but now I feel like I might. I'm not sure if this is an ideal self idea or a fear of giving it away. Do you have any thoughts on how to deal with items that give you second thoughts? Guys, it's not just a case item. It's a might item. <laughs> It's a might just do. It's a might just do. Catherine, I totally get it because I yeah, make these same too. excuses to hold on to mm. anything. And that's why these boundaries, I think, are really helpful in our lives. Not because you should do it a specific way. You determine your boundaries. Mm. But let's be honest. These recipes, are you ever going to actually use them? And if so, if the answer to that is truly Yes. And then it's a just for win item. Okay. Which ones are you actually going to use? Okay. Can you find those online? What was the recipe site that we mentioned a few weeks ago that got rid of all the ads and all the, the preamble? Oh, yeah. Just, just the, re the recipe? It might be. Oh, Alabama yeah, will look it. that up really quickly. Yeah. But yeah, I think it was justtherecipe.com. Yeah. And what it did is yes. it gave you, yeah, justtherecipe.com. It gave you all the recipes without any of the fluff, without the preamble, mm. because technically recipes aren't copyrightable on their own. The way Ooh. people make a recipe, I learned this from Professor Sean. He used to be the editor at Paleo Magazine. And so a recipe by itself, you can't copyright. But what you can copyright is the story you put around it, which I guess can be entertaining. But if you just want a recipe, it's probably available online and you don't have to hold on to all the clutter that's in your home. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Well, you know, I talked about risking uh, relationships earlier. When you are getting rid of things like these recipe books, like you're you you are risking that maybe in some non-existent hypothetical future, mm -hmm. you may need that 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 cookbook. But like, there's no honor in hanging on to something uh, at the at the cost of your own well-being. Yeah, and know? the fascinating thing about that is, I think we, there's a survival instinct that kicks in. If I get rid of this. Maybe I'll starve to death if I don't have the recipe because we conflate it with the food itself. Yeah. Yep. If I can't have the food, yep. can't have the nourishment, what if I starve to death? So I'm going to hold on to these for dear life. These recipes could mean life or death. Yeah. And as soon as you say that out loud, you realize how absurd it is. Yeah. And you know what? Like, I don't know what this is where this is coming from. I might be getting like a sixth sense thing I'm channeling right now. But I, I hear your magazine saying to you, if you liked it, then you should have put a ring on. If you like your magazine so much, why don't you marry it? Would you marry it? Yeah. Yeah. magazine. <laughs> if you love it, you commit to it. Hey, seriously though? Oh, seriously? I mean, there's, yeah. Here's, here's a little uh, game you could play with the magazines. You can say, I will keep whatever I'm willing to com uh, commit to. So let's say you got five magazines, food magazines. 
whichever ones you keep, you got to agree to deliver on four of those recipes in that particular magazine within a certain frame of time. Mm. And if you're like, no, I can't commit to that, get rid of it because you don't like it. So don't put a ring on it. Uh. On the other hand, if you're like, okay, I'm willing to commit to that, then you can commit, you can keep that magazine. Let's read some more about less, y'all. This article is from technologyreview.com by Tate Ryan Mosley. One of our patrons sent it in. His name's Ben in Alabama is going to do some reading here. The name of the, or the title of the article, which we'll put a link to in the show notes over at theminimalists.com. The title is, Your Digital Life Isn't As Permanent As You Think It Is. Mm. Alabama, take it away. Robin Kaplan understands the fragility of digital memories intimately. After tragically losing both of her parents in recent years, Kaplan treasures the digital possessions she inherited. She cherishes her mom's iPad, access to their email inboxes, and message threads with both of them. It allows her to see the world through the eyes of her parents, she says. Pause right there. So we were talking earlier about when my mom died, and I still have access to her Yahoo email. Or at least that's the story I tell myself. Is that I, why she keeps emailing me? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ryan, what are you up to Wednesday night? <laughs> Stop emailing me. You're dead. <laughs> Josh is just laughing on the other end with his cigar as he's typing. It. <laughs> I have a message delivered to Josh. <laughs> the aliens. <laughs> Ryan comes to me. All right, so I got an email from your mom. Right. She needs to tell you about aliens. Right, right. Uh-huh, sure, Ryan. <laughs> anyway, anyway all right. so I have, I tell myself this story. I have, I've given myself this certainty. I have mm. access to her email. Yeah. I looked at it once when, right when she died. Mm-hmm. And I saw the name and password. They probably deleted it at this point. I, I have no idea. Maybe they, they didn't. Maybe it's still out there. Mm. But the story I tell myself is, oh, I have access to this if I ever need it, right? Mm. The truth is, I am never personally never going to use it. Mm. And the same is often true with many of the, the digital things, although I want to take it a step further. As a person who practices letting go, practice is not the right word, but I think you understand the essence of what I'm saying here. A person who is constantly willing to let go, thinks about letting go, thinks about what I'm holding on to, am I forming attachments that are unhealthy in my life? And I think about the story that Derek Sivers tells about being careful what we outsource to the tech companies. He, had a, he has this friend who is this executive. He had this 10-year-old daughter. My daughter just turned 10. And this, this guy, he was trusting Google to keep all of his photos. They Google <clears throat> photos. And when he got he, this new, he upgraded his Google business account. And there was a button there that said, do you want to merge your accounts? And he clicked yes, because he wanted to maintain all 10 years of his daughter's photos. And the moment he clicked yes, he goes in the folder, it's all gone. Oh my God. Oh my it sense. sounds like when he deleted all my notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, parallel. Uh, and what happened is all, and he, he got a hold of someone, he was emailing, mm. nope, nothing you can do. It's all gone. Every photo of your 10 year old daughter is now gone. Mm. And what Derek says, well, that's why I back it up locally on my hard drive. Or someone else might say, well, that's why I keep a photo album. That's why I keep boxes and boxes of photos. 
It's whatever excuse you want to tell yourself. And to me, the real minimalist experiment here is, if that happened to me, would I be okay? And the answer to that is, yeah, I wouldn't bat an eye at it. And that wasn't always my answer. And I think even five, six, seven years ago, as one of the minimalists, my answer would have been like, oh no, I'm so bothered by this. I'm so upset by this. I'm so offended by this. And those things might be true. But the question is, how long do I want to hold on to that bother? Who Mm. told me that this is bothersome? Mm. I'm telling myself this, no one else, or maybe society is also saying, you should have these photographs or whatever, right? That's a relatively new phenomenon anyway, right? 300 years ago, no one was holding on to photos of their 10-year-old daughter. They didn't exist. It doesn't mean I think that photos are bad. I obviously don't think that I have photos. Mm -hmm. But if they were all to spontaneously combust, I'd be totally fine. Yeah. Let's return to the text here. Malabama. After Kaplan moved away from her family in Canada to New York, her mom had sent a text each morning converting the temperatures in the weather report for Kaplan's new city from Fahrenheit to Celsius, along with suggestions for fun things that she found to do online. I never actually learned Fahrenheit because I relied on this for my first 10 years here, Kaplan says. Kaplan, a researcher at Data and Society and an assistant professor at Duke University, guards her text thread with her mom fiercely. The conversation is saved in multiple ways, but she panics each time she gets a new phone, worried it might disappear. Mm. On May 16th, Google announced that starting in December 2023, it would delete personal accounts that haven't been active in over two years. Photos, emails, and docs attached to inactive accounts will all be eradicated as part of the policy. Accounts with YouTube videos won't be removed, the the company later clarified, after people pointed out that the policy could lead to the destruction of historically significant video clips. Other details still remain unclear, such as whether Google will make exceptions for accounts that are inactive as a result of ongoing legal issues or because they belong to people who are incarcerated or medically incapacitated. Google did not reply to our questions. Will you skip Mm. a paragraph here and go to the announcement follows? Yeah. The announcement follows a similar one from Twitter last week, pledging to purge accounts that have been inactive for several years. It caused an uproar among people who don't want their deceased loved ones' accounts to be deleted. Mm. And that's what I wanted to finish this episode with, is Mm. having a conversation around this. I think about some people we know, like our friend Stan, who died back in early January 2014. The last essay in our second book, or our third book, rather, is called essential, the the name of the book, but the essay is called Live Like Stan. And it's about his life. And in there, I quote from some of his tweets, which I found inspiration in at the time, especially going back and looking at that after he had passed away. Mm. And it sounds to me like Twitter is going to go and delete his account at some point. And so I have a few options here. I can be outraged and yell at Twitter through Twitter. And that probably won't accomplish much. Or I can go preserve those tweets that I want to preserve myself. I could take screenshots of them. Mm -hmm. I can download them. I can copy and paste them. I can do whatever I want to do to preserve them in whatever way I want to preserve them. By the way, I could turn them into art. I could frame them, put them on my wall. I could turn into a giant painting or a sculpture. I could put them in a little photo album. I could just keep them on a hard drive on my computer. Whatever I want to do, it's up to me to do that. But it's also not the duty or the responsibility of these tech companies to hold on to everything for you either. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, if anything, it should be inspiration for you to think of a unique way to preserve these uh, memories or, you know, these digital things that you want to hang on to. Writing an essay about Stan and like distilling his life down to that essay. I mean, what uh, what a tribute to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and, and those will still be there mm-hmm. uh, because you have went out of your way to find a creative way to, to kind of, uh, yeah. Give this tribute to him. So, and, and even I will even say this. I'll go farther and say, if that essay burned up and the internet burned down, and all, there were no more copies of that book, mm-hmm. it would still be okay. Yeah, of course. I, the thing that I did, that I created, I created at that time. Whatever happens to it, happens to it at this point. But if I cling to that or I cling to anything else, it's going to drag me where I don't want to go. Yeah. By the way, I, didn't this happen with MySpace like a few years ago? Yes. Where they lost all that. All the information, mm. everyone's photos. Uh-huh. Woo! It, it it makes you think, makes you think twice about the nature of legacy, right? Mm. We're we're building all of these digital empires. This is what everybody's doing in this generation. Every every aspect of how we're leaving our mark, it's all digital and could just be like wiped away. Yes. And in this quest to be on the right side of history, we might be on like the invisible side, the we forgot about you mm. side. There's no evidence that you were even here side of history. And that could be interesting. But there's always that legacy we can leave with the way we impact individuals. Yes. You know? But you don't necessarily get fame with that legacy. That's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, it's a lesson for us to take yeah. uh, ownership over it. Yeah. Instead of uh, outsourcing the ownership to these tech companies. I mean, you're right, Josh. Like, there's nothing written in the the fabric of the universe that says Google better preserve that for the rest of time. As uh, you know, if they're if they're able to. I mean, this is uh, a yeah. yeah. It's just a reminder. Like, hey, we got to take ownership over over our things and not outsource it. That's yes. right, and that's half the lesson. It's an important half because if we don't, we're going to get really upset and bothered by these tech companies or by other people. Mm. And the other half of the lesson is, am I willing to let go? Mm. Because on a long enough timeline, even legacy, you think about Buddha or Jesus or Muhammad on a long enough timeline, well, the sun's going to explode in 500 million years. So we know we have about at least that that is a definitive cutoff point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, But there's going to be some point in time where everyone is forgotten. Yeah. And so, yes, you can build a legacy, but for what purpose, right? Mm. Maybe it's, I want to ease the suffering of, of humanity for generations past me. Okay, that's mm. a fine thing to do if that's what you want to do, right? But understanding, usually we're doing that, the legacy thing is is just a uh, pursuit of the own of my ego. Yeah. How can I solidify me and my name that it gets carried on for generations? Well, why will I care? I won't be here anyway. Yeah, it is it is ego driven like how how can I be remembered long after I'm gone? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's like the the man with the biggest tombstone is still dead. Yeah. 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 For added value segment this week, Ryan, I sent you this album a few days ago. You know me, I don't generally get into country music mm-hmm. at all. It's unfortunate. I know, right? It just it doesn't <laughs> resonate with me yeah. for whatever reason. But this album, I imagine Jimmy Butler driving to the NBA Finals playing this album. The good image. Uh, it's by Bailey Zimmerman. And the this is a title track from the album. The album is called Religiously, the album. And I love this lyric. And let's talk about how it applies today. You hear it looping in the background right now. I went looking at pictures I didn't want to see. They brought back memories. 
Sometimes those pictures we're holding on to trigger the memories inside us mm. that we don't want to hold on to. Yeah. And it's hard to let go of those memories. It's hard to let go of the psychological psychological clutter that we're in bondage with mm. when we're holding on to these things that become our chains. And so sometimes we hold on to things that continue to bring out trauma. And we have to relive that trauma over and over. And really, I think that's what this song is about. Mm. This is Bailey Zimmerman, religiously. All right, that's our Maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter. Also, the Millennial Minimalists are here. Oh, you can check out their podcast as well. They had TK on there recently. Uh, They've said they refuse to have me and Ryan on the podcast. So... (laughs) We'll put a link to TK's interview in the show notes as well. Did I mention post-production Peter and the rest of our team? I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, please let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. I was looking at pictures I didn't want to see. They brought back memories. You look happy, I guess, got the life that you wanted, but it ain't with me. You would think by now that I wouldn't care. It's been a couple years, and yeah, I've had my share of other broken aparts, but I only shed real tears over ours. Now I'm in this cold, bright light, and this don't even feel like life, cause I don't have the Like I'm happier now But all of my friends know that ain't the truth And lately life's been good to me Mama's healthy and I'm helping out the whole family But people know my name I made a little change That don't mean nothing Cause now I'm in this cold bright light And this don't even feel like life Cause I don't have the only Cause I don't have the only